0: Welcome to Fossils and Fiction, a podcast exploring cultural and scientific ideas about dinosaurs. Hi, I'm Travis Holland. This episode is another in the research journal format. I speak with two researchers who've recently published papers adding new evidence about the diversity of ancient life in Australia. First up is Dr Ellen Mather from Flinders University, speaking about the redescription of a long-known eagle as instead being from an extinct species of vulture. Secondly, we have Dr Stephen Poropat, who reports on a trove of sauropod teeth from Winton, Queensland.
1: I'm Dr. Ellen Mather from working at Flinders University Paleontology Lab. So, this research was part of my PhD project, which was looking at um, fossil eagles from Australia, specifically looking at um, describing and determining the taxonomy of um, species that hadn't been um, formally described. Yeah, and so it's been pretty good to get this out um, and formally published so the world can know a bit more about. Um, our the um, our extinct fauna and also looking forward to getting the rest out as well. Could you tell me
0: about your vulture?
1: This vulture actually has quite a storied history. So the species itself was originally described back in 1905 by a ornithologist in Queensland called Charles Walter de and he named It came from a fossil that was found in northern South Australia, a distal humerus along the Warburton River, and he named it Tophatus lacitosis, which means powerful grave eagle. Now over the course of the 20th century, um, other paleontologists started looking at this fossil and thinking maybe this isn't an eagle, maybe it's a vulture, but for the most part these were just suggestions um, rather than actual in-depth study, and so my research really wanted to go into detail and confirm whether or not this was actually the case.
0: Yeah, great. And so what did you actually do? You re-evaluated the the fossil itself and then found some other evidence as well?
1: Uh, At the time, we couldn't get direct access to the fossil, so the Queensland Museum was kind enough to allow us to scan the original fossil so we could look at the scan data and compare it through that. But we also were fortunate enough to identify more material of this species that came from the Wellington Caves in New South Wales, which the Australian Museum lent to us. And so this material included two um, fragments of distal identical to the fossil from uh, the Warburton River and also a tarsometatarsus, so the lower leg bone of a bird. That, that was the right size that we'd expect for the this- for the same species. Under normal circumstances, this discovery would have just been a reassignment of its taxonomic affinities and not resulted in a name change, so it would still be um, Tephetus. But the thing is that DeVee actually um, made a bit of, mis- of a mistake when he named it that. So he'd actually used the name Tephetus about five or ten years prior for another species, and under taxonomic rules, you can't use the same name multiple times for different things at kind of makes things a bit of a mess when you're trying to understand how they're related to each other. So the name Phaetus was effectively invalid, so we had to come up with a new name.
0: What was the new name? Do you want to explain that a little bit?
1: Yep, so the new name we gave this species was Cryptogyps lacitosis. So keeping the species name, but giving it a new genus name. So Cryptogyps literally translated means hidden vulture. So we chose this name to reflect how this species had been sort of hiding in plain sight as an eagle for over a century. What
0: implications do you think it has for realising that there were vultures in the Australian landscape during the Pleistocene rather than just um, just the eagles?
1: Uh, so it definitely has us reinterpreting like the biodiversity of um, large birds of prey in Australia. So we now know that during the Pleistocene there were were a much more diverse group but it also has broader implications as well for our ecosystems function back then so vultures um, wherever they're found play pretty vital roles in ecosystems as scavengers so they help um, consume and break down carcasses rapidly and they also prevent the spread of diseases from they also prevent the spread of disease so as you can imagine when vultures are removed from an environment That means that carcasses tend to persist in the environment for much longer. You get diseases spreading um, much, you get diseases becoming much more widespread in ways that they wouldn't have previously. And you also get other species um, becoming, you also get other species that will now try to fill that niche that the vultures were occupying. And that can result in ecosystems are restructuring and rebalancing as populations shift and dynamics are altered.
0: What do you think the environment looked like when these vultures were roaming the landscape?
1: So at the time, the Australian environment would have been pretty ideal for a vulture. So you'd have lots of megafaunal animals roaming around, you'd have diprotodon, so again, those big megafaunal animals that could have provided these carcasses for vultures to survive on. Interestingly and so we'd have these vultures we'd also have um, most of the modern fauna um, around back then too so there would still be the wedge-tailed eagle there'd still be um, our kangaroos so in some ways um, the modern fauna is just a slightly is um, a really just a reduced aspect of the Pleistocene fauna.
2: My name is Dr. Stephen Poropat. I am currently a postdoctoral researcher at Curtin University. Um, But while I was doing this research, I was an adjunct at Swinburne University of Technology. Um, And I'm also a research associate with the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum in Winton, Central Queensland.
0: Great. Could you tell me, or give some background on the Winton formation and what's been found there so far?
2: Yeah, so the Winton Formation is uh, a rock unit that is between about 101 to 93 million years old across its full extent. Uh, In Winton, the rocks tend to be towards the upper end of that, but 98 to 95 or 94 million years old. Uh, And these, the rocks that form the Winton Formation were deposited on a very flat floodplain. And so, you know, Winton today is quite flat. 95 to 98 million years ago, it was probably just as flat as it is now. But instead of being scrubby grassland, uh, this deposit was actually formed when Winton was covered in forest. Uh, The dominant trees uh, forming the canopy would have been uh, conifers. So relatives of modern day bunya, cowrie and hoop pines. Um, But then in the understory, there would have been Flowering plants like angi- or angiosperms. Uh, there would have been ginkgo. Uh, there would have been cycads and ferns. No grass whatsoever because it hadn't evolved yet. Um, and yeah, just, just a, and I went horsetails with the other dominant plant group that lined the waterways. So fossils of all those different plants have been found in the Winton area. Um, but in addition to that, of course, there are multiple uh, lines of evidence to suggest that animals were there as well. Uh, we often find freshwater bivalves um so re- related to modern day unioid bivalves um we find evidence of freshwater turtles freshwater crocodiles uh, or crocodile relatives anyway they're not true crocodiles um and there have been two species named to this point one's called Isisfordia Duncani from near Isisford the other's Confractosuchus Soroctinus from near Winton uh, and that one's particularly notable because it was found with a dinosaur in its belly so it was predating on or, or at least eating small-bodied dinosaurs um and in addition to that of course you've got um Lungfish tooth plates, so lungfish still live in Queensland today but in a very restricted area, Uh, I think it's the the Mary River. Um, Now, uh, 95 million years ago, they were Australia-wide and um, we find their tooth plates in many, many fossil deposits uh, and in Winton it's no exception. Um, Additional to that, you have um, the occasional bony fish in, in the freshwater deposits, there's a possible... Uh, although it's a, definitely a lizard, but what type of lizard it is, we're not sure. It's either related to modern-day goannas, or it's um, a dolichosaur related to mosasaurs, the, old, the really big ocean-going um, lizards of the Mesozoic or the Cretaceous period. Um, but of course, then you know the dinosaurs are what I think most people want to hear about, <laughs> and. Um, yeah, there are at least four different groups of dinosaurs represented in the Winton area, in addition to all the fossils that I've talked about that to this point. We have theropod dinosaurs, primary among them being Australovenator wintonensis, a megaraptorid found near Winton in 2005. Uh, we have ankylosaurs, so armoured dinosaurs, very rare evidence of them, a few teeth uh, and a few other bones that haven't been described yet. Um, ornithopods, mostly known from their footprints rather than any... Fossil evidence beyond the, the one that was found inside Chucky or Confractosuchus. Um, the most common dinosaur fossils found by far are those of sauropods, big long necked herbivorous dinosaurs that were yeah, evidently dominant in this area 95 to 98 million years ago.
0: Yeah, and so all that plant life uh, forms a, a rich variety of food for some of those sauropods, and particularly I think uh, Diamantinosaurus is one of the ones that has been described from the area. That's right. And this particular research paper that we're going to talk about today, you found a, a range of teeth, or assembled a, a series of teeth. I think from from the, from the region, uh, including some from Diamantinosaurus. Tell us about the teeth.
2: Yeah. So basically, um, before two thousand or twenty seventeen, uh, rather no, not 2017, 2019, Before twenty nineteen, we didn't have any definitive sauropod teeth that we could point to and say, yes, this is a sauropod tooth from the whole of the Winton area. And that was despite the fact that uh, over the past 20 years now, 17 years then, um, the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum had excavated probably close to three dozen sauropod sites across the region. Uh, so to not find any teeth from sauropods was really unusual. And the main reason for that is that Like reptiles today, especially crocodiles, sauropods would have continually replaced the teeth in their jaws throughout the course of their lifetime. They didn't just have baby teeth or milk teeth and then adult teeth like we do. They, as soon as a tooth wore out, it would be lost, shed, and they'd replace it. Uh, In some sauropods, it's not unusual to see six replacement teeth per socket lined up, ready to go. In other sauropods, you might only see One or two lined up ready to go they're using their teeth for longer and replacing them less often so there were many reasons that we thought we should be finding them but we just weren't and then at this one site which we called the mitchell site in 2019 we found a dozen teeth uh, throughout the entire dig season which was about three weeks in duration and then a follow-up dig to the same site in 2021 produced another five from the same site what those teeth also provided us with, of course, was a search image. Go through the collections that had been assembled to that point and see if we could find anything that looked like the teeth that we were finding at the Mitchell site, which were undoubtedly sauropod. And sure enough, from the original Diamantinosaurus site, which was called the Matilda site. uh, So he'd produced the skeleton of Diamantinosaurus that bears the name. Also the skeleton of Australovenator that bears the name the best skeleton of that animal so far. Um, And there was a bit of jaw with two teeth lodged in it that came from that site uh, that looked as if it had possibly been chewed up and eaten by a a carnivorous dinosaur or or a crocodile. Um, And there was also an isolated tooth as well from that site that had been ambiguous until that point, but we realized when we saw these other teeth, it's gotta be from a sauropod. So all of a sudden we had a few teeth that were probably part of that same individual, the original diamantinosaurus. And another tooth that was actually found... So those teeth were found in 2005 or somewhere between 2005-2010 because the Matilda site was dug for five years in a row. Um, But even before that, at a site that produced another specimen of Diamantinosaurus that was only recognised as such in 2016, um, there was a tooth from there too. And it was even better than the ones that came from the Matilda site. So it was associated with a, a Diamantinosaurus skeleton nicknamed Alex. So we had teeth from two individuals of Diamantinosaurus, in addition to all these teeth coming out of the Mitchell site and um, basically what that has enabled us to do is say that all of these teeth look very similar to one another and if they don't all belong to Diamantinosaurus they at least belong to a very close relative thereof. So there's a, another sauropod from the Winton area called Savannosaurus. There's one from Aramanga called Australotitan. And there's another one called Samientosaurus from Argentina. All four of them are part of a group of sauropods that are called Diamantinosaurians. We named that group last year because we recognized it as including those animals. And so these teeth are clearly from a Diamantinosaurian. In the case of the winter ones, most likely Diamantinosaurus or Savannosaurus.
0: Where do that? Where does that group, the diamond group, fit within
2: the broader sauropod families? So, um, I guess the sauropods that would be most familiar to people are things like Diplodocus or Apatosaurus or Brontosaurus. Um, those are a group that's very separate from the sauropods we're talking about. The big group. That they belong to is called macronaria just means big nostrils because the early forms in that group have big nostrils things like giraffe titan and brachiosaurus have got big nostrils on their on their heads um if you walk a little bit further up the tree you take this one branch that goes away from those sorts of sauropods and then radiates in in the latest cretaceous you have a group called titanosaurs so by the time you hit about 90 million years ago until the extinction of dinosaurs 66 million years ago titanosaurs are the only sauropods you find anywhere in the world and diamantinosaurus and its relatives are right at the base they're on the ground floor of titanosauria they are very sort of we would we don't use the term primitive but it's an easy way to understand it they're basal titanosaurs
0: uh, so what, what are the implications then of the work of being able to characterise these teeth finally and, uh, and add them to the collections or recognise them as part of those specimens?
2: Two big things from my perspective. One relates to, um, you know, what primitive titanosaur teeth look like. And the second, of course, relates to uh, the position of, of diamantinosaurians in their ecosystem. So um, advanced titanosaurs or derived titanosaurs... They have much narrower crowned teeth than Diamantinosaurians did. So they tend to be concentrated right to the front of the mouth. They seem to have been replaced really rapidly because they're very narrow. They're not using too many resources to actually make each individual tooth. So they'd wear down and be replaced really rapid fire. Diamantinosaurians weren't doing that. Uh, They were, they had much more robust teeth. And they presumably then would have replaced them much more slowly because they would have been quite energetically costly to to produce and to replace. Um, And it would seem that they needed to be robust based on what these sauropods were eating. So it's quite possible that they were eating very different foods to the derived titanosaurs because derived titanosaurs, some of them are clearly specialized for browsing very low to the ground. You see them with sort of squared off muzzles, all the teeth forming a row along the front of the mouth. They're they're browsing very low to the ground, but Diamantinosaurus and its relatives don't seem to have been doing that. So one of my co-authors, PhD candidate, Tim Fraunfelder, and University of New England in Armidale, he looked at the microware on the sauropod teeth from the Mitchell site, uh, because five of the 17 teeth that were found to the end of 2021 had wear facets on them. So that is a a part of the tooth where the tooth has been grinding against you know, the tooth in the opposite jaw or against the food that the animal's eating. Because sauropods didn't chew, they just snipped and swallowed, but the teeth still abraded against each other and against whatever they were eating as they were procuring it. Um, And so he looked at the wear facets and basically was looking for what we call pits, gouges and scratches. Pits and gouges tend to represent uh, bits of sediment or grit being rubbed between teeth. Um, and he found very few of those. In low-browsing animals, you find a lot. So we can pretty much rule out a very low-browsing habit for diamantinosaurians. So they're probably feeding at least a metre above the ground, and based on the lengths of their necks and everything else we can put together to reconstruct their feeding envelope, they could possibly reach as high as 10 metres above the ground surface. And so plants within that window... Anything could be on the menu. Um, As far as um, the actual foodstuffs themselves are concerned, um, because he found plenty of scratches on these teeth, they were eating something that was somewhat hardy and abrasive. So whether they were stripping bark or occasionally taking fresh conifer cone shoots or something like that, fruiting bodies from cycads, we don't know. Um, what we will need in the future to test this hypothesis, of course, is definitive gut contents in a sauropod. Um, and I know it's actually been reported before, even though we haven't finished the research on it, but we do have a sauropod that has gut contents preserved from the Winton area. And if we can establish what species that is and what's in its gut, we may well be able to test the interpretations we made based on the teeth.
0: Brilliant. So lots of, uh, lots of interesting information coming out there. And I guess the... Do expect there to be some more significant finds in the future from Winton and, and nearby?
2: Absolutely. Uh, some of the unpublished stuff that's in the pipeline, in and of itself, will blow people away. I'm hoping um, there are two main projects that I'm working on at present, uh, including that specimen with the gut contents that will yeah alter our understanding of these sauropods even more um or if not alter it at least enhance it um and yeah every time we go out into the field we're heading out in you know matter of four weeks or so we could find something truly groundbreaking pardon the pun
0: great look forward to more news coming out of the australian age of dinosaurs and the uh, associated institutions thanks for joining us
2: thank you very much travis it's been a pleasure
0: Thanks to Dr. Ellen Mather and Dr. Stephen Poropat for their time. If you're enjoying Fossils and Fiction, we welcome your comments and feedback on social media, or please consider rating us on your favourite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Fossils and Fiction podcast, produced by me, Travis Holland, with the support of Charles Sturt University. The podcast theme music is Sonora by Quincas Morea via the YouTube audio library. Find more content on our social media channels, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Show notes are available on the website fossilsfiction.co. You can subscribe to the podcast on all major podcasting platforms.